The ghost of Silas Vecker once said, Run! Run for your lives! They're going to eat you! This is Save vs. Rant. Welcome to Save vs. Rant, the Everyman Gaming Podcast. I'm John! And I'm Jeremy, and today we are talking about the sixth and final installment of Rise of the Rune Lords, The Spires of Zinshalast. Alright, so, this is the final installment of the Adventure Path, so, unlike a lot of the other adventures in this path, this doesn't do as much lore building, and really doesn't have as much of a social aspect as the others. It really tends to drive home a lot of combat, which makes sense when you're in the last installment of a series of fantasy adventures, and you've built up these characters who are extremely powerful, now we get a chance to actually showcase that power. So, where do we start? First step is to actually find Zinchalast, the stronghold of Karzug. Now, there's a number of ways the player characters could find out this information. They could consult with the Thessalonian sage back in Sandpoint. It'd be a good reason to go back to Sandpoint. Last time to go there anyway. Go there and talk to him, and he might point them in the right direction. Or, they're high enough level, they could use magic. They could use divination spells to just go, which way do we go? And either way, they get mostly the same information. They know that Zinshalast is located in the towering mountain of Mar Massif, in a valley up in the mountain. They'll learn that Mar Massif itself is said to serve as a bridge to strange realms beyond Galarian. So, okay, there's going to be extra planar creatures there. Probably like demons and angels and stuff like that. Other outsiders, whatever. Denizens of the great beyond. Mysterious beasts from Lang and Lost Carcosa. All of these crazy things from the Lovecraft mythos is what you actually mean. That's not the point we're making right now. The point is, you gotta go to those mountains. You gotta follow the river Ava. And if you do that, you're going to find yourself at Zinshalast. Alright, so you use greater teleport, you start getting to this mountain area, you might have used some uh, magic to insulate yourself against the cold, you might have actually bought cold weather gear, it doesn't really matter, you're high level adventurers, you're going to start scaling this mountain, it's going to be nothing. Well, that's what I love about this module, is that is not the case, because as we know from real life, Scaling mountains is dangerous. Not only do you have to contend with things like rock slides, the opportunity to fall off the mountain and plummet hundreds of feet to your death, the generally hostile nature of the terrain in question, and the frigid cold, but the air gets very thin. And believe it or not, no matter how high level you are, you have to breathe air. Unless maybe you're a monk with certain very specific abilities. Point being, altitude sickness is a very real threat to the player characters, which is really interesting because it's great to have one last reminder that even at high level, even extremely powerful characters are still threatened by the mundane threats of this world. That the most unforgiving environments on Galarion do not bow to you. You are not immune to these things. The whims of nature can still bring about your downfall. Alright, so it's going to be a bit dangerous. The player characters make their way up the mountain range and have to try and find the exact right route to find Zinshalast. Zinshalast is actually occluded from the world around it. It's, it's hard to find. It actually actively deters people from finding it. Fortunately enough, there was a group of dwarven miners who found Zinshalast and might have recorded the exact way to get there. So the player characters are going to find the cabin of these dwarves 
and look through their notes, possibly use this as a base camp before they head further up the mountain. Should be pretty simple and easy. Wrong! This is haunted. We love haunts. This entire adventure path has been pushing haunts all throughout it. And what happened was, these dwarves went on this adventure to find Zinchalast, found Zinchalast, were doing pretty well, but unfortunately a bunch of yetis, which are extremely prolific in this area, broke into their supplies, stole them all, ate all their food, and left these dwarves with nothing. With no way to resupply, and no possibility of getting back safely otherwise, the dwarves decided to cannibalize their comrades. And upon doing so, were overcome with the greed of the place and felt the need to return and try to loot it. All of them died. Wow, that's kind of dark. I even see that there's a fight with a a Wendigo in this part. A Wendigo is a very interesting Native American spirit that is what people turn into if they engage in cannibalism. It's really interesting, and I like this section... If it was in a different module? Well, see, I get your point. What we were talking about before we recorded this episode is that this section is really good. It would be fantastic in literally any of the other modules. You could put it into place and it would feel like a great part of the adventure. But at this point, we have such a well-established goal. We have such well-established needs for where this adventure is going that it almost feels out of place. I don't necessarily agree that it would be better not in this module. I think it does a pretty good job, but I definitely see where Jeremy's coming from with this because it doesn't really contribute directly to the ongoing theme. It might have been better if there was, for instance, some sort of group of mages who were trying to find the rune well of the Lord of Avarice. Like, that might have been a better theme for this base camp that gives you this opportunity to have these battles and to uh, address these haunts. But as it is, I think it's a pretty good set piece. And on top of that, some of the haunts are really creepy. There's one where one of the cannibalistic dwarves is eating gold dust off the floor and looks up at the player characters all manic and is like, you have to try this, it's delicious. And it's really uh, dirt that's infested with arsenic, so he's trying to get them to eat poison and they all feel compelled to do so. Oh yeah, I love this section. The cannibalism in this part is much creepier than even the ogrekin back in the third module. This is a really good section. I just feel that sowing these plot thread seeds this late is not, you're not really going to reap a good reward out of it. It feels kind of mundane, and I kind of understand that it lets the player characters have one last really good section to be heroes, but yeah, no, it it's good. I mean, there's a an 11-round haunt that is this giant set piece where the player characters feel the ghosts breaking in and trying to possess them, and then the player characters get overcome with this cannibalistic urge and try and eat each other, and the whole house is shaking, and at the very end of that, the Wendigo tries to break in and smash things down. So not only are you contending with your other party members, but you're also contending with this great, powerful spirit, all while there's a dwarf... Uh, a dwarven ghost trying to reconcile with his dead dwarven ghost brother who ate him. That's all really cool stuff. 
Yeah, it, it works great, and I get what you're saying. It's a little late to be sowing these plot seeds, because right now we should be reaping all the plot seeds we show, which is why it's also interesting that this module points out that if there are any villains that have survived this long and are still going strong, now would be a great opportunity to reintroduce them to the campaign. This is literally your last opportunity to reintroduce them to the campaign. If, for example, Amokmurian's a bad example because he's certainly dead but you know if the scribbler got away or something this would be the place to face him one last time heck even if nualia from all the way back in the first module if she somehow escaped you i could see her climbing the mountain and being huddled here in this cabin and when the player characters come in her eyes are full of fear and greed and anger just all these horrible emotions as she stands up her body fully transformed into a demonic uh, body she goes you you ruined my plans that would be a a great way to have a, a battle against a foe that you haven't seen for five modules Oh yeah, and she tried to eat you too. That would be great. Anyway, so after the cabin, we move on to the roof of the world, which is the highest points in these mountains. And here we incidentally come across a nymph called the Queen of the Ice Mists, who is either a rather whimsical foe who does not intend on hurting you for real, but does want to play pranks on you and give you crap, unless you helped the nymph way back in the third module, in which case she's very amiable to you because that was her cousin and she's glad that you were able to put her to rest. If you did that, this becomes a place where you can get assistance and generally move forward with the adventure. This is exactly what I'm talking about right here. Reaping the plot threads that were sown earlier. If we can have this little callback to the player characters going above and beyond and helping out a dead nymph and having it pay off right here, why why shouldn't the entirety of this module be that? I mean, we know that at the end of this, we're going to be fighting Karzu, who's been taunting the player characters from a distance for a number of a number of modules. And we know that he's big, bad, and evil. Why can't the other things that we've done pay off more? I mean, we already know that Sandpoint, they love us so much. Going back there at the very beginning is a great way to say goodbye to Sandpoint. More and more and more of these things are what I would like to see in these sixth modules. Speaking of things I'd like to see, there's an aside in the original that doesn't show up in the anniversary edition, but it talks about this is what Zinchalast looks like at the height of its power, and it gives the city stats for it. And this is one case where I feel like it's an actual fantasy metropolis, the sort of over-the-top powerful city that I would honestly expect to see in a fantasy world. I mean, we're talking the total wealth in it is over almost a billion and a half gold pieces and the population is over 250,000. I mean, it's actually a metropolis. And that's even though a big constituency of this population is giants who, by definition, take up more space than everyone else and require more resources. This feels like a fantasy city. And unlike in our episode where I was talking about how frequently fantasy writers tend to lose their track of how scale works and how real cities like Paris and Moscow were freaking huge during the Middle Ages. This is an example of what I think a medieval city, a true metropolis, is going to look like in the case where powerful magic is readily available. That's a great thing. But that's just my, so it's my little rant. Anyway, 
even in its ruined state, Zinshalast is an incredible location. There are all these buildings that the player characters are going to be searching around through. The main street is actually literally paved with gold, which, I mean, you could try and pry up, but they're gold-plated bricks. It's going to be probably way too heavy for the player characters to gather around in. By the time they get a chance to actually sell them off, it's going to be after the end of the adventure. So, On top of that, the rules say that you only harvest, I want to say, 1d6 times 4 platinum pieces worth of gold every day you spend scraping and prying gold off of the various fixtures of Zin Shalast. But it's an incredible city. It's got some amazing set pieces and a few fairly major enemies that still dwell here, along with some flying creatures and some high-altitude creatures and an entire clan of skulks that's still hangs out in the general vicinity. There are a ton of giants in here. Not only are there storm giants, there are frost giants, and there are rune giants, the most powerful of the giants in the Pathfinder setting. One of the things I like about the rune giants is they look like Japanese oni. They, they look so much different than the very western giants that we see in the rest of Pathfinder. Honestly, apart from not being blue or red, the rune giants look more like Oni than the Oni in the Pathfinder setting, which to me is kind of amusing, you know? But the whole thing is the city of Zinshalast, where you need to find certain Sahedrin rings and uh, necklaces. You should have the ones that you've been finding throughout the adventure, but you need to find these items so that you can actually get into the inner sanctums of the city. Now... One of the things I really like about this section is they're not going to be a lot of the Sihedron rings for the player characters, so you might need to use the necklaces. Well, if you use the necklaces, Karzug can see through that player character's eyes. He can speak through their mouth. He can taunt the player characters while they're in the city, giving him kind of an omnipresent feeling without the player characters actually being able to fight him. Oh, one other thing about Zin Shalast I wanted to mention is the interesting counterpoint with Magnamar, which is a city built on Thessalonian ruins. Whereas Magnamar is still a big, impressive city that looks phenomenal and has a lot of storied history, Zin Shalast is sort of the original, the real deal to Magnamar's pale imitation, and I think that a good DM would be able to very well play off that contrast and mention the familiarities with Magnamarian architecture and design, but that that is only an imitation of this, the real thing, the glorious architecture of a golden age long past. Oh, also, there's a fight with a very old blue dragon. Why am I mentioning it? Eh, because dragon fights are cool. Yeah, there's a dragon chill in here. There's also, like, a Decapus vampire thing, but that encounter kind of feels thrown in, to be honest. And I'm glad it's there. It's a neat encounter. It's a cool fight, and it shows that some unsavory creatures have taken up residence here, but it doesn't really play too much into things. Once you leave Zinshalast proper, you have to climb up Mar Massif. The, the giant mountain, to the pinnacle of avarice. So in the mountain, there is a carved visage of Karzuk himself, and on the very top of his head is his castle, the Spires of Zinshalast, which looks vaguely like a crown on top of his head. And I was pointing out to John earlier that this is probably my favorite callback in the entire adventure. The very first 
a module ends with the player characters going into a dungeon that's in a giant statue's head. Here, you're going into the head of Karzug, which is carved into the side of the mountain. And I, I feel that that bookends things very nicely. But you have to scale up here, and then this is where you enter into the death zone. The air is so thin, you might actually die of suffocation. But once you scale up here, you go into the spires of Zinshalast, the giant castle that Karzug himself once inhabited. And there's a lot of things here, a lot of small fights, big fights, powerful creatures. Once again, a lot of combats. One thing that's notable about this, though, is something called the Lang device. It turns out, as we find out Karzug's backstory in this, the sixth module, that part of what made him effective as the Rune Lord of Greed and allowed him to overthrow the previous Rune Lord of Greed was an alliance with beings from the plane of Lang. These beings from Lang have created this Lang device, which originally they made for Karzug with the intention of teleporting his army from the distant past to the present. However, the purpose of the device has been subverted now. The purpose of the device is now to bring back a great old one by the name of... Uh, I'm sorry, this says Mar. That's that's the name of this mountain. This is Mar Massif. Pathfinder lore. Okay, so many eons ago, Rovagug, one of the most powerful evil gods, was imprisoned in the world of Galarion by the good gods. And while they were doing this imprisonment, this great old one named Mar was just kind of chilling in the area, digging through the earth, as you do when you're a sentient volcano. When, yeah, sentient volcano, exactly. <laughs> when Rovagug was imprisoned, he got caught in the imprisonment and sucked down into the earth, where he suffered and was sad. And he was like, dude, it's not cool. And the gods were like, what? And they were like, you imprisoned us in the earth. And they were like, oh, sorry, didn't even mean to do that. He's like, could you let me out? And they're like, no. No, actually, you are an elder super evil. So the Spires of Marmasif are actually his attempt to push his way out of the earth, which resulted in the formation of these spires, one of which happens to be shaped exactly like him. Not that you'd know, of course, because he's just a mountain-shaped volcano thing, but that's the thing, is he is a freaking mountain, and if the Lang device is activated, which is supposed to happen as soon as Karzug leaves his sanctum, it will bring Marm back. So obviously the player characters, well, they don't have to interact with this at all. It doesn't really matter. Because if they defeat the Rune Lord, he's not going to come out and it's not going to activate the Lang device. But if they don't defeat him and he does come out, what happens is based on whether or not the Lang device has been disabled by the player characters. If they messed with the Lang device and kept it from either destroying it or keeping it from activating, then when the Rune Lord gets out, he's going to gather his awesome army and destroy the world and take over everything. However, if they didn't disable the Lang device, when the Rune Lord gets out, all of his soul energy goes into the Lang device and summons back Mar instead of giving the Rune Lord awesome power. As a result, the Rune Lord is now going to be a fairly minor player in this new struggle for the entire world of Galarion. And maybe even an ally to the player characters. I almost feel sad that there's not a seventh module where this happens. That all happens after the end of this adventure, though. That's really cool, but right now, we just want to kick Karzug's butt. And... 
we've looked around in the pinnacle of avarice and he's not here. He's obviously hiding in a pocket dimension. Super wizards always hide in pocket dimensions. It's also how he's been able to stay alive for 10,000 years. He hid in this pocket dimension in a state of suspended animation and as people marked with the Cyhedron rune have died, their solar energy has been going in and powering him up, waking him up, making him more powerful, making him as powerful as a god. So we definitely gotta kick his butt. The way into his pocket dimension is through a thing called the Anima Focus. It's a giant golden globe looking thing. You open up, you step through, and you go into a really cool looking area. The final battle is set, it looks like it's set over top of a giant pool of lava on these walkways that are like curled up around the pools of lava and you have to like run around these walkways. Hold on, hold on. I'm looking looking at the anniversary edition and let me show you let me show you really quick what it looks like I, I'll, I'll put a picture in the blog or something but this is the original eye of avarice by the way and yeah that's exactly what it looks like that's the lens right there and all of this is just like lights and that's that's it in the original it's just a circular room with the soul lens in the very center of it and in the original module it even is just a Simple fight, one-on-one, well, group-on-one versus Karzug. Yeah, which really doesn't work out very much to his favor. He's got time stop and stuff to increase his action economy, but we all know from experience that boss fights with a single boss who doesn't get additional actions tend to uh, end very poorly for that boss, even if he's several levels higher. Whereas, I'm looking at the Anniversary Edition now, and he's got some buddies in there with him. Oh, including some giants that have been dominated, right? Yeah, he has uh, one adult blue dragon who is loyal to him, the Warden of Runes, which is a rune giant who is loyal to him, and two storm giants who are not loyal to him but have been dominated by the rune giant. If the rune giant is defeated or if the domination is released, they'll fight Karzug, which is a callback to the dragons from the fourth module, who, if you break their domination, they fight their master as well. So it's really cool to have those callbacks, and that's something that we've talked about throughout this is the opportunity to do callbacks to things that are familiar or that are running themes in the adventure. So I like this combat a lot. There are round-by-round tactics for not just Karzug, but for his allies, and exactly what they do to try and stop the player characters. Now, Karzug uses Time Stop not once, but twice, to prepare all of his buffing spells and to disrupt how the player characters are standing around the area. He has a Flaming Glaive, which acts on its own, which has the ability to heal Karzug if he's reduced below... That says 200 hit points. Oh, he's a beefy guy. He has a lot of hit points. 382 hit points, fast healing 10, armor class 37, 22 touch, 30 flat-footed. I'm reading from the Anniversary Edition. I mean, he's truly a force to be reckoned with. Spells up to 9th level, including Quickened Baleful Polymorph, Meteor Swarm, 2 Time Spops, Whale of the Banshee, and 2 Wishes. Yeah, he uses those wishes to essentially cast heal on himself whenever he drops below 200 hit points. So frankly, he has, in in all actuality, about five to 600 hit points that the player characters have to get through. Now, I know that's a lot, but at this level, the player characters are going to be doing between 30 and 50 hit points per 
per character per round. Obviously, less on rounds where they're disrupted and whatnot, but they're going to be dishing out a lot of damage. This isn't going to be a fight that lasts for minutes on end. It's probably going to last 10 rounds at most. Right, so once we've defeated Karzug, the only thing left to do is celebrate. I mean, to defeat Karzug, we either need to kill Karzug and break his extra planar lens that's going to allow him to uh, bring the soul energy back into the world, or just break the lens and leave, because if we do that, he can't escape at all, which is a perfectly satisfying solution for the most part, although you're going to have to take off those Sahedrin rune necklaces to totally break the connection to Karzug at that point. Still, Satisfying endings all around, a fabulous final fight, and the heroes get to return triumphant to Galarian, where people will tell tales of them for eons to come. So, Adventure Path is complete. What's the moral of our story? The moral of this story is that Paizo puts out amazing adventures. John and I did not pick this one because it is one of the best adventure paths. In fact, we think that it's right around the very center. It's maybe at the 50% mark. And even then, it's been pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty phenomenal. Some of the things I want to touch on real quick, I want to talk about the fact that in the anniversary edition versus the original, they did a lot of touching up of some of the lackluster portions of it. Some of this adventure in the original was just, oh yeah, there's a maze here. What's in the maze? Nothing of value. Or, and now you fight Karzug in his secret sanctum, and he will battle you and you will kill him. And they took those things and they beefed them up a little bit, added some really cool material, and made it a better module for that. So that's pretty cool. So, John, which one of the modules did you think was the best? In my opinion, number four. Number four was definitely the best. The uh, whole battle with the stone giants, and first the battle at Sandpoint, which was phenomenal, and gave the player characters a great feeling of being the heroes of Sandpoint one last time. But then beyond the Battle of Sandpoint, there's also the whole infiltrating the giant stronghold and really taking that on, along with a few weird anomalous things throughout that, like that hidden library and the Black Monk and all of these other things that really weirded up that module in such a delightful way, as well as the fact that it's the first time the player characters had a real battle with a dragon. I agree wholeheartedly. The fourth module is probably the best in this adventure. And as I said before, I think the worst module is actually the fifth module. It really had a lot of good stuff that it provided, but the module itself was very lackluster. I could have absolutely talked about that module for a lot longer, not because it was good, but because it was almost good, because it had some really great material in it that I don't feel they did enough with. And I think that a good DM who does tweak the material a little to their group can make it into a truly phenomenal module, but as it stands, if you run it exactly as written, it's okay. It's decent. It accomplishes what it needs to accomplish, but it's not super great. One thing I do love about this adventure path, and all the adventure paths in general, is their ability to make themes, ideas, enemies, all of that recur in ways that don't seem repetitive, but do give the player characters a chance to acclimate themselves to specific enemies and specific ideas, you know? The repetition of haunts, for example, make them a familiar face when you're finally facing the truly devastatingly frightening haunts here in the sixth module. You've already been facing the haunts for several months modules. The giants throughout the whole thing, you keep seeing giants, that's great too. Recurring themes of Thessalonian architecture 
callbacks to the presence of Lamashtu worshippers in the first module and the fifth module. I mean, all throughout it, you can see that there was a lot of planning involved in this and that they knew from the first module where they were going to go with it, even if they hadn't ironed out every single detail yet. So, season two of Save vs. Rant is a wrap. It's been pretty good. It's been a lot of fun. Join us on the first Monday in June when we begin Season 3. And the first episode that we have for Season 3 is about player archetypes. Yep, we can categorize people into archetypes when we discuss what they like and dislike about games. That helps us organize and think about what's going to be best for our players, as well as best for us as DMs playing with those players. We'll be happy to have you join us, and we're very excited about the opportunity to talk about it. So once again, this has been Save vs. Rant. Thank you very much for listening. In Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. Samuel Taylor Coleridge Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. New episodes are released on the first and third Monday of each month. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at saveversusrant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you. 